have a very special episode today. I am joined by Andre Stetsenko, partner at Farley Capital, an investment firm that invests all around the world in the US, but also in India, which we're going to be talking about today. You've got a blog, Dispatches from India, where you share your macro research. We'll link that in the description. As the name might suggest, Andre has been a business partner with my dad for over a decade. So Andre, thanks so much for doing this. Good to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Andre, let's start off by just tell me about how Farley Capital got it started to get invested in, in India. Sure. So we're not a big firm, so we, we can't be everywhere at once. So with limited resources, you have to prioritize. And a bit over a decade ago, your dad and I, we sat down and basically went through the potential niches where we could become experts or at least attempt to become experts in terms of various emerging markets. We looked at Brazil, we briefly considered Indonesia, and it it, it wasn't close. I mean, India was the obvious choice at that point in terms of trying to build expertise. It wasn't obvious, I have to add though, at that point that India would become the investment success story that it has been where you know, a lot of things have gone India's way and we expected or hoped that they would, but it, it was still not as obvious of that as it might seem in, in hindsight. And so I think India as an overall index has done well over the, over the past decade, you know, relative to other countries in the emerging market index. Over the past, you know, let's call it 20 years the S&P has done well. U.S. mid caps and small caps have done slightly better than the S&P. And then if you compare those to the Indian indices, the benchmark Indian index, the Sensex, has done very roughly double the cumulative performance of the uh, S&P. And then uh, Indian mid and small caps have done even better than that. So it, it's, you know, past performance is no indication of future results. And obviously, and anything uh, that we're doing in India, the whole point of it is to do something different than the indices. But that just gives you a sense of the the opportunities available there, especially especially as, as I have to say, where if you're willing to do the work of going past, digging deeper than the you know the household name companies, you can really uncover some gems. You can't you can't be invested in everything. I get that, but. Why India as opposed to other countries? You said Brazil, maybe Indonesia. No, okay, India, this is this is where we want to spend a lot of our time. Why did you go there and why did you stay there in particular? Yeah, India really is the only, not even emerging market, it's the only country left that has, you know, over a billion people and just it, it has a bunch of things that are they, you really don't need anything special for things, for living standards to keep improving, for GDP to keep growing, for, you know, earnings of every kind of imaginable company to grow because there's a huge consumer market, domestic demand that's, that's there. That, that alone would be enough to attract, you know, multinationals and investors to India. But on top of that, you have this labor force that, the, I mean, the labor costs are incredibly competitive relative to China, Vietnam, Brazil, anywhere, uh, just about anywhere you look. And so, so the answer is basically just that it, it, it's unlike anywhere else. It is unique. There's, you know, at one point there was China and India waiting to develop. China's now 
well ahead of, of India. And so if you're looking at as many companies now are of, you know, where do I diversify away from China? You know, you can put a plant in Malaysia, you can put a plant in Vietnam, but if we're talking about really huge scale production, India's really your only bet. And, and companies are in fact shifting there, like perhaps most notably. Okay. So it's, it's got a billion people. Well, yeah. Compa- compare it to China. China has been a very a huge economic success in terms of the just GDP growth, but some doubts call into question the quality of that growth. Is it just a giant you know, real estate bubble? As well as people look at the stock market and say, hey, the GDP has been growing 9% a year, but the stock market is flat. What's, what's going on here? How is India different from that? Well, if you rewind back to before China's big slowdown, I think it's important to note that um, China's market did perform very well. If you start at the point where they were, where India is today, up to you know the, the moment where their growth model um, started uh, sputtering. As recently as 30 or 35 years ago, India and China had very similar levels of per capita GDP. Um, China obviously took off on this incredible growth trajectory. Um, India uh, has taken a lot longer to develop, to get you know the engine revving. The, the upside of that is that there's a lot of room still to run. So India doesn't need to reinvent the wheel to keep growing from where it is now, which again is, you know, it's maybe you could say behind China by two decades, maybe three. And there, there's a lot of catch up development just from stuff like people leaving farms to go take higher productivity jobs in cities, you know, service sector employment rapidly expanding, you know, basic technologies that are proven elsewhere being applied in terms of improving everything from agricultural yields to factory output, anything you can imagine. And couple that with the fact that India, because it's only now getting to where countries like China are, where we're a couple of decades ago, it, it can leapfrog certain technologies. And so, you know, there, there's no, no one talks about building out fiber optic landline internet in, in India, because everyone now has a cell phone. And no one talks about, you know, these complex projects to, to figure out ways to link people's uh, for digital commerce, because they have something called Aadhaar, where, you know, that's a whole separate interview. But if you're a, a startup in India, you can basically plug into this database that allows you to have a verified payment and identity resource for every single potential customer. There, there's so much that India has accomplished, but it's it doesn't take it won't take any magic for it to keep growing at the rate it has. So that's growth. Tell me about I guess corporate profits and you know are corporate profits going to grow alongside that? You know, I think someone going in and just buying a random basket of Indian stocks would probably do okay. I think the the job that we have and investors like us have in going to India is to try to find companies that are benefiting from multiple levels of tailwinds where, you know, GDP growth, that's great. That's a given. Everyone hopefully is benefiting from that. A lot of our companies, they're benefiting on top of that from an increase in the formalization of their sector. So whereas, you know, a few years ago in an industry like chemicals, there would have been a lot of production happening by, you know, not, I wouldn't quite call them mom and pops, but informal enterprises that weren't paying taxes, that were unregulated. It's that has it, it, the, the shift from that to these organized, including listed businesses that are regulated that pay taxes has accelerated for a variety of reasons. 
And so not, not only are you benefiting from the sector growth, you're also benefiting from basically market share gains against these unorganized players. And then hopefully if you're you know, in the right sectors, you're also growing faster than GDP. So for example, in chemicals, per capita consumption in India is something like one-fifth of the global average. So you are catching up in terms of the contribution of your industry to overall GDP. Your overall GDP pie is growing. You're gaining share within your sector. And then on top of that, in a sector like chemicals, you can also start to harness the export opportunity where because India has such competitively priced labor, it's increasingly um, being used as a hub for exports to the region and the world. And how is the Indian stock market different from the American stock market? And is it a different experience investing in uh, one market versus another? You know, you think of the, the American stock market and you have these giant corporations that you know, are mm-hmm. com- 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 comprise a lot of the index and they just continue to outperform. And, you know, everyone says you got to buy these these value stocks, but maybe they're not that high quality. And then you have some IPOs, but some of the IPOs are, are a little shaky. You know, is it is in India different where you have IPOs and you know it's like, oh wow, this company is IPOing and it's at it has a price to earnings ratio of eight, which you know, needless to say, is not common in the US. Yeah, that's a good question. India has had an IPO boom in, over the past few years, and that's continuing a long history where I'll just briefly get into the the reasons why, at least in in my view, there's such a huge number of high quality listed companies in India, especially compared to a developed market like the US, where the banking system is very different from what we're used to in the US. So it's very difficult if you're starting a business or growing a business to get a bank loan, that the the whole banking system was basically state controlled up until fairly recently. And even now it's still dominated by state run banks. So if you are a huge state owned oil company, the the system was designed to fund you. It was not designed to uh, fund a scrappy entrepreneur. And so as a result, a bunch of businesses that in the US or, or elsewhere would have probably been funded by venture capital or by bank loans, they had to go public in India. And so they're listed out of necessity. And that's continued with all these recent IPOs where, you know, I've been to India 15 times now. And it's yeah. it, 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 the number of exciting newly listed businesses that I've met with has only grown over time. And, you know, these are companies that, again, they, they probably wouldn't be public in a, in a market with a different structure. Mm-hmm. And so what are some other differences between the Indian market and the American market? Yeah. So the U S market, as you indicated, is very top heavy. You know, there's these tech companies, especially that, you know, they're a lot of them are winner takes all our winner takes most markets and they're growing fast, but the, the overall market is not growing so fast that a new entrant can come in and also do well. Again, very generally speaking. In India, it's very different because ev- the market for everything, you know, generally speaking, is, is growing rapidly. You can start a business in a sector like irrigation pipes or in a workforce staffing, temporary staffing that uh, does very, very well, even though that industry might be considered more of a commodity industry, somewhere like the US with lower margins, lower returns on capital. Uh, in India, if if you are managing to grab your fair share of that growing pie, you can do very well. You know, the, the industries aren't as consolidated as they are in the US. There's there's still this ongoing process that I mentioned earlier of taking share from the unorganized players 
So there, there's just the, the state of development in just about any industry we look at is, is at a much earlier stage. And maybe I'm, I'm interpreting that it has a slightly different impact on the performance of so-called you know, high-quality companies. In the U.S., there's a tremendous premium on companies' ability to grow their earnings that's based on, oh, it's the number one player, and they have these mm-hmm. competitive you know, moats, these competitive, yep. competitive advantages. In India, maybe it's not that moats are less important, but comp- companies can grow their earnings with, with having maybe less, slightly less of a moat. You know, maybe there's room for for four you know, dominant companies instead of just one in America? Yeah, most, I wouldn't say that there's less, but most are less important. I'd say that there's a, a greater variety of ways in which to develop and sustain a moat. So a good example would be stuff like agricultural, chemicals, even cement. They're commodity products in, in the US. In India, they're often almost consumer goods. They're branded, they're sold directly to small scale farmers or builders. And because the regulatory infrastructure isn't as developed as it is in the US, where, you know, if you buy agrochemicals in the US, you can rest assured that there's been some government entity that has inspected some variant of that product. You know, you don't have to take the company's word for it. In India, reputation is much, much more important to a company's brand. It's really synonymous with the company's brand. And so you'll see ads um, along the highway for branded cement because there's certain brands that have built trust that, you know, if you, if you use this product, your the building you build will, will be, still be standing decades from now. Whereas if you try to save a little money by going with some unknown competitor. And so what are the types of companies that you, you think can build these moats and consistently grow their, their earnings and maybe you'll be talked about into subsector rather than the oh you know utilities consumer staples discretionary rather the, the real yeah. sectors rather than the made up sectors. Yeah, I'd say that the most important broad brush distinction in terms of how we looked at look at sectors in India is we try to steer clear of anything where it's dependent on anything other than the company doing well at what it does. So if we're talking about a telecom company or a, a contractor for government-funded infrastructure projects, uh, they might be you know, just fine as businesses, but if they're ultimately at the whim of a bureaucrat, you know, the, the change in government at some point, that's, that's not a risk we want to run. So we prefer to focus on companies where you know, their, their product or service has to prove itself in the market to, to the end consumer. So that, that includes financials, that includes consumer goods, it includes industrial goods, you know, tires, specialty chemicals, just about anything where it's being sold to consumers or other enterprises. Okay, you mentioned financials. What kind of companies are, are, are those? Are those banks? And are, how does the fi- financial companies and banks, how do they differ from the U.S.? Yeah, so the the financial sector in India is it's evolving very rapidly, and it's gone through a series of ups and downs over the time that I've been familiar with India, where there was a long stretch of time up until pretty recently where overall bank lending was stagnant, and there was some growth in what they call the non-bank financials. Um, but uh, basically, it took until a couple of years ago for bad loans from the previous cycle to get cleaned up. Uh, that cycle was about infrastructure investment, you know, huge mines, telecom infrastructure, um, et cetera, that was funded back then. 
And a lot of it just didn't perform as well as people had anticipated. And the, the tailwind that's now being added to economic growth is that banks have sufficiently resolved that mess, especially the private sector banks, which, you know, they're, they're a minority of the overall industry, but they're growing much uh, more rapidly. They are now, they now have the capacity to grow lending to dynamic private sector companies for the first time in, in, in a while. Does your relative interest or guess, your bullishness on some financial sectors, how, how does that, what, what are like net interest margins like in, in the Indian uh, system? Do, do you know, Indian depositors expect a, a high d- deposit rate? And then what do you sort of default look like? Yeah, so the, as for net interest, the, the, the problem that India, uh, fortunately for them, has not encountered is, you know, they, they haven't had to deal with rates falling to the floor. The inflation rate in India up until recently was substantially higher than in the U.S. Uh, in, in the past couple of years, they've been much more similar. At one point, actually, Indian inflation was below that of the U.S., and as a result, rates have, while they've moved around, they've been a lot less volatile than in the U.S. And so if you are extending loans, you, you know, it's your kind of the, the window of where your funding costs and your yields have, it's moved a bit over the years, but, you know, basically you're paying mid single digits for funding and you're yielding high single digits, low double digits on, on what you're lending. So other opportunities in India were not that excited about financials. The ones that we are excited about, they're generally uh, lending with uh, really low loan to values against stuff like property to you know salaried workers, where you know they not only can they point to a long history of having low, very low defaults, but they can also have reasonable assurance that the the collateral is good. What are the managements like in India? Are they, you know, in America, they've got a conference call and they say, yeah, ask a question. It's a little political. How is it? What's it like in, in India? Yeah, there's that's that's a, a, a great topic because, you know, I think a lot of people might have this impression of India as kind of the Wild West where, you know, they may not be as quote unquote professional in terms of the managements and boards of U.S. companies, I think in my experience, I found the opposite to be true where, you know, I, I've, I've known a few U.S. companies in my day that had very professional pedigreed boards that made terrible, terrible decisions and really did not act in the interests of shareholders. In India, of course, there's examples of that that you can find. But what you can also find, which I think is much more rare in the U.S., is a company where the founder or the founder's kids are the controlling majority shareholders. And so even though there are maybe fewer, quote unquote, professional directors on the board, the people um, who are running the company day to day who are allocating capital, they think of it as their capital. And so they're much more thoughtful about how they uh, invest and how they deploy capital. And uh, if you can find the best, the most capable among that group and co-invest with them, basically be a partner with them in, in this business that is their, you know, it's the fam- it is the family's wealth, it is that business, then yeah, those have been some of our best investments. They've got they've got skin in the game. Okay. And so I, I on the one hand, you know, someone who has their MBA degree in corporate governance might might frown upon that. But you you say actually no, like you want you don't want someone who is an in- director who doesn't have who doesn't own any shares or owns a, a nominal amount of shares. Like you want someone who's 
he was vested. So, so I guess one you know, notable exception, tell us about the Adani scandal. And this is a very large Indian company that had, you know, short seller with one of the best track records as an activist short seller, put out a short report, the stock tanked, and he made a series of allegations. So first, of all, can you summarize that for, for me and our viewers, as well as share your, your take on it and your thoughts as it was occurring? I believe you said you had some interesting anecdotes. Yeah, so part of that story was about the appearance of impropriety, but not necessarily anything overtly illegal involving, you know, kind of maybe over exuberant promotion of valuations of the group where, you know, the projections were made, not unlike, you know, perhaps some large electric vehicle companies in our country have, you know, the, the, the stocks appeared driven intentionally more by sentiment than fundamentals. Again, not necessarily anything illegal, but the stuff that was potentially or allegedly illegal in the Adani case, it involves uh, limits on uh, how much the promoter, as they're known in India, basically the controlling shareholders, how much they're allowed to um, own of a given company. And so usually the public has to own at least 25 or 30% of shares outstanding. Allegedly, the Adani's got around that threshold by having certain nominally independent managers own and trade stocks on their behalf. And anecdotally, I have heard stories allegedly about fund managers being approached in Mumbai hotel rooms and being offered large sums of money on the condition that they invest in accordance to you know, certain instructions. And, and so that is obviously a much more serious allegation. And the, the sense, I think, is that to the extent that the, the stock promotion was maybe too exuberant, that that's kind of excusable to the extent that these rules were being violated, that, that's, that's a concern and probably something that's going to be scrutinized for going forward. Yeah, I mean, that, that appears uh, often where you, uh, there's a stock, like let's say there's a million shares, but 950,000 of them are owned by insiders. So only 5%, 50,000 of them are floating. Yeah. It doesn't take a lot of money to, to move that price around. And then the, that valuation, that's how you had, you know, a, a port, a company that owned ports having a price to earnings ratio of you know, 50 or, or, or 100. Yeah, people might wonder, you know, well, why, why is it, why does it matter if someone, you know, owns a little more than they're supposed to? It's exactly what you just said. If you really have a much smaller float or public ownership of a company than what people think, then it takes a lot less to move the stock in accordance to what might benefit, you know, a certain interested part. And I mean, in, in the US with SPACs, that happens a lot. And in, in crypto, that, that happens a lot. So it's, you know, some things in finance repeat themselves. So but but that yeah. doesn't color your view of corporate governance in India, the, the Adani scandal, or, or does it? Corporate governance is, uh, I think it's it, the, the, the fact that there is both good and bad corporate governance in a market, as I think that statement is also true of the US. That that should be an advantage to active managers because what, one of the jobs that we're hopefully performing is identifying managements that are ethical and honest, you know, are well regarded, and that really, you know, you can't really do that just by looking at a Bloomberg screen. You have to go on the ground. You have to talk to people. You have to, you know, collect scuttlebutt. You have to hear, you know, well that promoter maybe isn't well regarded for this reason, you know, that one, maybe, you know, he wasn't the brightest, but the next generation, you know, that they get it. 
and you know it, it there's there's a, a process that isn't foolproof, obviously, but a, a process by which you can try to avoid getting entangled with the types of people who get in headlines for the wrong reason. Yeah. And what are some of those red flags that you have seen, or maybe my my dad has seen, you both have seen that said, you know what, it's a cheap stock. The fundamentals looked good on paper, but yeah, I, I shook this guy's hand. It just didn't feel right. What what are those uh, t- types of things? And to what degree, you know, are they are they different than in the U.S.? Yeah, some of them are similar. Some of it is stuff that you can, you know, try to figure out by basically being a forensic accountant and looking through annual reports and finding related party payments to some entity that was founded a few years ago and doesn't seem to do much except collect payment from this listed company. And I'd say that, again, very, very generally speaking, that was something you'd come across more often when we first started going to India over a decade ago was that kind of pattern where you know you it, it was much more overt than in you know anything that you'd see now i think a lot more indian managements since then have gotten with the program in terms of realizing that even if they might want to be unethical for whatever reason the best way to maximize their wealth is not to siphon money from companies it's to grow market caps and to uh, try to um, earn their way to a higher PE, both by, you know, having good business performance and by having effective communication um, with investors. And you know, to that point, what one way or one criteria, a piece of criteria that we use to screen for corporate governance, apart from obvious stuff like what we hear from our contacts on the ground, is simply just how management communicates. Where there there have been examples of companies that you know they overpromise and underdeliver they seem to be focused more on the short term than anything else and you obviously steer clear of those and try to focus on the ones that do the opposite where they're very conservative in how they they approach investment and growth projections and you know that that doesn't necessarily mean that they're super friendly and open to investors uh, sometimes it can actually mean that they kind of like Berkshire Hathaway they, they don't really even really meet I mean, you have to try for years and years to even get a meeting where you, you you know you can confirm for yourself that it's a business that's focused on being run well rather than promoting itself mm-hmm. uh, earlier we referenced price to earnings ratios what are the valuations that you encounter in India maybe you can summarize them overall I, I believe it yeah. is the case that the the, the Indian index Valuations are probably, on average, more uh, rich valuations than other emerging markets. So that's in the macro, you know, like like the overall index. But in in the types of companies, once you get into the weeds, I mean, are are you finding? And then also, do you think some some Indian companies are fairly valued, or, or frankly, you know, over you know too too expensive? I mean, should a, should a utility company be trading at a hundred times price to earnings ratio? I think one broad generalization we can make is that. The, the better known it is, the bigger it is, generally speaking, the higher the PE. And so while it's true, absolutely what you said, that if you look at the indices, if you look at you know what ETFs that allow you to invest in India, what, what they own, the, the PEs of their stocks, they're, they're usually on the higher end. They're you know, above 20, 30 isn't unheard of, 40 isn't unheard of, I've seen 50, I've seen 60. And you know, these are companies that they're... they're Getting, if I had to argue for why they deserve that, I'd say you know they're, they're 
they're being valued not just for their track record and their you know prospects for continued earnings growth. They're being valued just for kind of being the obvious picks for someone who's looking to get exposure to India. And so, you know, there's a large number, for example, of private sector banks in India or of industrial companies. But if you had to just pick two off the top of your head, you'd pick HDFC Bank and Reliance Industries. And so those are two huge companies among the biggest in India by market cap with very high PEs relative to some of the lesser known companies that might be overlooked. And, you know, the, the companies that are selling at lower PEs, obviously that category includes some lower quality businesses, but it also includes a lot of, you know, overlooked companies and overlooked for, for any variety of reasons. What sort of valuations are we talking about? I mean, like, what is the, what are some of the cheapest companies in, in India? And maybe you can com- compare them to you know, oh, in America, this would have a PE of 20, but it has a yeah. PE of 14. The work of finding companies that are high quality yet selling at very attractive valuations, it's it's always, it always takes work to find them, but I'd say that it's been pretty consistent, you know, the the just the presence of those companies and the opportunity set. And so on this most recent trip last month, I met with at least one, maybe two companies. Again, I can't name them, but they sold at single digit PEs and were growing at double digits. Yeah, that's that's not necessarily representative of the broader market, but those are the kinds of companies that, again, through boots on the ground, you, you you can find them. And not to say that it's not ever worth it to pay a higher multiple. It absolutely can be, but that that that's indicative of the kind of companies I'm talking about when I say overlooked. And how often is it that Indian companies have a positive net income, that they have a, a profit, not EBITDA, not gross profit, <laughs> but a, a net income. You know, in America, obviously, you know, many, many companies make a lot of money and, gr- and grow those earnings c- consistently. However, it's, you know, there are some companies that, you know, they, they've been public for five years and it, it's, they, they still are not making money, but they have some sort of met, um, met, you know, on gross profit, they, they are profitable. You know, I mean, I think the, the Russell 3000, there are lots and lots of companies that yeah. are not making money. How common is it that in India that, I mean, is, is a company that is not making money kind of a black sheep? With few exceptions. I mean, India does have a booming startup scene, but that includes some companies that, you know, they're burning cash. But I'd say generally speaking, yeah, you won't get far in the Indian market without profit. And I think part of the explanation for that is just that they, they, never uh, had anything close to the um, zero rate environment that I think fostered a lot of that kind of, those kinds of businesses uh, being formed and going public despite not having profits in our country. But one other thing I'd add uh, about valuations is that India has this very interesting phenomenon that, you know, it's, it's been a big area of focus for us is this phenomenon of holding companies where these used to exist, they still do to some extent in the US, but it used to exist basically before my time up until the 80s, where you'd have a company that sold at a big discount to its some of the parts value. And there was this argument that you know the discounts would never close for X, Y, and Z reasons. They'd always existed. Eventually they did close. In India, I you know, I hear the exact same thing where people say, well, yeah, you know, that company, it, it it offers an indirect way of owning X company at a much lower PE because it sells at a huge discount to the market value of its stake in, in, the, in the company. 
But you know, you'd rather just buy it directly because these things always sell at a discount. And the the logic for why we like these holding companies is that you know, even if the discount never closes, we'd rather indirectly pay half the PE than pay full price if we can. And there's without getting into details about specific holding companies, there have been some pretty interesting examples of ones where the there's been this kind of dawning realization that you know there are interesting ways of buying underlying businesses at discounts and getting exposure to a diversified set of operating businesses in a way that is you know it's it's more attractive than just buying them directly. Yeah, cr- cross holding situations are very interesting. Who owns the stocks in India? So there are. Uh, you know, the, the owners, the the entrepreneurs and their families own a lot of, you, you mentioned that earlier. Yeah. Then there are domestic equity holders. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell us about that sort of culture, stock holding culture, maybe contrasted to China, which is not, yeah. you know, the Chinese citizens, much, 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 real estate is much bigger there than, than stocks. And then the foreign holders of equity, you know, your, yourself included, who who owns that? I mean, I'm sure there's, you know, all these ETFs that own it, but how many are active funds such as your, yourself? Yeah, I'd say that if you are a top 10 shareholder of one of the companies that that I'd be interested in in India, I probably know your name. You know, this it's not a huge list. I'm saying I'm talking about foreign institutions. Foreign, okay. Yeah, I mean that it it's really not a long list and there's a variety of reasons for that. One of the main explanations as to why I think if you look historically there's been a huge opportunity for our performance by stock pickers in India, to, definitely to a degree that, to a greater degree than in the U.S., is is just that the financial markets are a lot less sophisticated, or however you want to phrase that. Where, you know, I think your median in a U.S. company institutional investors will be the majority of the will own the majority of the shares outstanding, you know, eighty or ninety percent in some cases. In India, the uh, average institutional ownership is you know, closer to 10 or 15% at most. And so the, there's a lot more, like you said, owner ownership by the, what in India there are known as promoters, the, the controlling, founding, managing families. And, and, and so there's a lot more, I think that ties in directly with the fact that there's a lot more volatility because there's, you know, a lot, a lot less of that kind of steadying hand of institutional ownership. And for someone like us, we think of that as a huge opportunity because you get the opportunity pretty frequently to, you know, buy things that have dipped by a huge amount on no news, basically rumors, and correspondingly to sell things that skyrocket to much higher P's on, on you know, stuff that isn't fundamentals. Yeah, and I guess now we can move on to a broader conversation just about overall investing, not just in India. How do you decide when to sell something? I mean, do you have a target in mind or do you, do you always have a sense of intrinsic value and, okay, this is trading above intrinsic value, so it's, t- it's time to sell? Uh, that is kind of the easy question. The much harder question is what happens when you like something and you buy it and then it goes down a bunch? I mean, how do you go about selling it? I know the world of you know stop losses that is for trading, and you, you and my dad are, are yeah. definitely not traders. You're much more investors, but there's a similar sense of risk management. Okay, I mean, do I double down when the, the market is telling me that this? You know, clearly people have doubts, and you know sometimes the market's not smart, but sometimes it is. Well, what did the market? What does the market know that I don't? 
Yeah, I'd say that the the biggest lesson I've learned in relation to that is that you know people like to talk about uh, what's known as a margin of safety when you buy something. I'd I'd add that if you buy something, if you buy a company that can compound earnings and has a long runway of growth ahead of it, where it can not only generate a high return on the capital it has invested, but also reinvest the capital it generates at high rates and you know keep that compounding machine going. That will go a long way towards addressing, you know, that any issues arising, even if you, you know, overpay based on you know current year earnings. Um, it, it, it's I think a much harder task to try to consistently outperform and make money looking at you know these developed world companies that are slower growing, where they're fighting over you know basis points of margin. They're you know struggling to grow at, you know, 5% instead of 3%, you know, struggling to maintain pricing power. You know, it, it, in a lot of cases in the companies I've looked at in the U.S., there's, you know, real doubt as to whether the business will be as good five years from now as it is today. In India, that's just, it, it's so much less of a concern. I mean, you, 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 might, you might find a company that grows a lot faster over the next five years than another, but they're both going to grow. Not to say that there's obviously not examples of companies that don't do well, but generally speaking, even if you were you know throwing darts at a board in India, you'd still have earnings growth. Um, you, you basically have to be doing something pretty badly to not grow in, a, in an economy that's growing at seven or eight percent. What about getting in and out at the right time yeah. as your thesis change? What when you buy a company and you you ha- very constructive on the fundamentals that it will grow its earnings. Yeah. Scenario A, the stock triples in a year. What do you do? Scenario B, the stock is cut in half or down sixty percent in a year. We, we, what do you do? If if the fundamental situation it, that affects the you know the what we understand and what we believe to be the intrinsic value, if that's changed, then it's time to change our minds. I mean that, that I can think of examples of that happening where. You know, it, it's 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 you had just the wrong initial understanding of of the business, and what you have to avoid in that situation is letting the price signal dictate your assessment of intrinsic value. Because there are also cases where it really is an opportunity to double down and keep accumulating shares at lower prices that offer an even better discount to intrinsic value than than before. I think the 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 generalized approach that's the one to take, not just in India, but I'll focus on India here is, you know, you, you, you invest with, with the long-term in mind, you have a reasonable confidence in why your assessment is likely to be the right one. And, you know, you try not to overpay. How much do you think about macro when looking at a stock? And I specific, I mean, the economy in general, but but specifically interest rates. You said intrinsic value, that's future cash flows. That's your sense of the business, but then you have to discount them back to the present with, you know, and th- those future cash flows that stream can be much more valuable when interest rates are at zero than when they're yeah. at five percent. And that generic observation led many people to say, oh interest rates shot up from zero to 5%. So the stock market is going to have trouble. And it did in 2022. But I mean, you know, we're in a new bull market. 2023 uh, has been a very good year for the stock market, uh, which has surprised many who take that, you know, discounted cash flow thesis, maybe kind of as gospel. 
Yeah, it, it, it has been a bull market. It has not been a bull market for companies that were directly negatively impacted by higher rates. And so the, the most obvious category of stocks to avoid in this kind of environment is you know, companies with a lot of leverage, a lot of direct exposure to rising cost of debt, where you know, they'd have trouble funding their borrowings. But if we're talking about a company like some of the tech giants in the US that have huge amounts of net cash on their balance sheets, rates, higher rates are arguably a boon for them because they're now earning billions of dollars in you know, risk-free interest on, on these cash piles. Right. Okay. So that is, I guess, on the liability side, but what about the valuation side of, okay, when interest rates are you're using the 10-year for your discounted cash flow, mm-hmm. it's, you get a lower number when the 10-year yield is higher. Yeah. And you know, that's, that is a nice theory, but is it kind of, okay, okay, that's nice, but like, keep that at Wharton. Don't, don't talk that to me, you know? <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd say that if, you're, if your appraisal of a company is radically altered by a change in the discount rate, then you are overthinking, you're spending way too much time on your analysis and not enough time just on figuring out what it is you're trying to do. You know, if, if we're looking at, you know, some of the high quality businesses that come to mind in the US, I can mention the sectors at least that I like, such as payments, there, there really is, it, 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 it doesn't make a huge difference to the intrinsic value, or at least my appraisal of, of intrinsic value, whether the discount rate is, you know, three, four, five, six, or even higher. Part of the reason is that, you know, with higher rates, we're usually talking about higher nominal growth. And uh, higher nominal growth means, you know, earnings are also growing faster than they might have in a lower discount rate scenario. And part of it is just that the the valuation that I wish you'd be interested in that company, it's not so high as to, you know, make it unattractive just with that, you know, tweak to to a model. So you mentioned the payment space, you know, not going to talk about any stocks that you know, your firm owns, but maybe we can talk about a company that you took a look at and analyzed it and you you decided not to invest in that and that company would be PayPal. On the face PayPal was a darling during the you know, uh, buoyant time in the stock market of, of 2021 and it the stock at least has fallen on hard times. And as is often in the stock market, the price this price goes down, and then everyone has a reason for why it goes down. And the reason is, oh, Apple is taking away its its market share. It's mm-hmm. you know, un, it's its gross margins are going down because it's doing unbranded st- stuff like that. But they do have a new CEO, so I know you took a, a hard look at the company. And when you when you take when you take a look at something, you go very very in depth. So share what at first said. Okay, this is worth taking a look at. I mean, it it is a company with high margins that has a PE yeah. um, that's a lot lower than it used to be. Let's put it that way. But so what originally drew, drew you to it to take a look at it and then what said, hmm, you know, it's maybe it's good, but it's not good enough for me. Yeah. So I, I'm familiar with the industry and one of the brightest spots in a very bright overall industry has been e-commerce and, you know, both of the leading players in terms of the payment, payment networks, they have subsidiaries that, you know, directly address this market demand for kind of a white label checkout solution for businesses selling online in terms of being able to accept payments. And when you check out at an online merchant, the the bright spot for PayPal and for other companies like it that, you know, their 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 kind of service providers plugged into this broader ecosystem 
is, you know, there's this kind of list of options you can select at payment, including PayPal. And that's problem number one. So they're at the mercy of that consumer selection. There's, you know, a large and some would say, you know, expanding set of, of alternatives there. And then they're also at the mercy of the fact that the, the market as a whole is, is not, they, they don't determine how it's structured. And so they're, they really are, you know, they're collecting basically a, a difference in terms of merchant discount rates, which are affected by interchange, which are set by the networks. You know, they, they, PayPal and companies like it, you know, including merchant acquirers that, you know, actually sign up the, the businesses that accept payments. They, they can have decent businesses, but ultimately, at the end of the day, that the uh, fundamental kind of starting point for, for their businesses, they don't determine that. The issuing banks, the card networks, the, the bigger players do that. And so, yeah. Did they, did they in the past? Because they, they definitely have been a successful company over the past 20 years. Are you saying the past 20 years were good, but that, that's, that has already changed? Or are you saying this problem has been with PayPal you know, for a long time? I'll, I'll tie this back into what we were saying earlier about Indian companies, where I think Tenor, especially 20 years ago, PayPal was a lot like you know the typical Indian company that I meet with today, where it was providing a much-needed service in a very rapidly expanding industry. And not only was the industry payments, in this case, expanding, but the electronic share of that was expanding. Maybe PayPal's or whatever company we're talking about, its own share of that was expanding. So there were multiple simultaneous tailwinds, towering growth, and the pie was expanding at a sufficiently fast rate that both they and their competitors could prosper and each you know, take their fair share of that growth. When growth slows down and your competitors, the number of competitors multiplies, that, that's the situation I think that they find themselves in today where it's, it's much more difficult to, to you know, sustain a moat and sustain pricing power when kind of growth sputters and even worse when some of your competitors may not have, you know, for, for a company like Apple, they don't care if they make money from payments. It's, it's completely irrelevant in, in the grand scheme of their much larger, more lucrative business. And so it's, that's not the kind of competitor you want to have. You, 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 you know, one that um, doesn't care if they lose money in the business you're in. With, within the uh, fintech payments space, yeah, what, what do you think of the credit card business? What do you think of the buy now, pay later business, which I don't really understand at all, but it, it, uh, it's gotten pretty, pretty big. I loved it. There, there was this great, and maybe calling it a meme is too disparaging, but this, this idea that people were throwing around, you know, when the rates were lower than they are today, about how the NPL was a big disruptive threat to the incumbent credit card industry. And that was just so funny because when people do uh, these BNPL payments, when they select that at checkout, they're, they're plugging in their credit card number. And so it was actually a boon for the credit card industry because they were splitting what would have otherwise been one payment into a bunch of smaller transactions, each of which would incur transaction fees. And you know, if you aggregate all that together, it, it would have been more lucrative than just one lump sum transaction. I didn't know that, but that's on interchange. That's not credit fees. That's all interchange. There. So when we talk about what what is earned by the networks, it includes both. So it, it's separate from from interchange, but suffice to say that it's both based on overall volumes and on a transaction basis. And so to the extent that you know everything else being equal, 
that you take the same dollar pie and split it into a greater number of transactions, that's better for them. Okay, that makes sense. So that's buy now, pay later. And then what about the credit card business? Not not about the payment networks, which you referenced earlier, but about the actual business of you know lending people money on credit cards. And that you know, many of the big banks are, are in this business. And there's some banks that specialize in it, but that's a credit business, unlike the network business. So the, not to be too obsessed with the idea, but uh, since you mentioned it, 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 a specific example does come to mind. I won't name the company, but there's a great issuer in India, a credit card issuer that, that I'm very interested in. And it is growing at double digits, you know, 20%, 30%. And I think if I came across a company with those numbers in the U.S., I would have the opposite reaction to the one I have in India, where because uh, the Indian market is so nascent when it comes to payments, especially with credit, you know, there are a lot of potential customers out there who don't have a credit card currently, who, you know, might be very eligible for one in terms of, you know, being able to, to pay it. And that, if you saw a company put up those kinds of numbers in the US, I think the first question would be, well, where are they getting those customers? Because yeah. the good, the, the quote unquote good customers, the the low risk customers are spoken for. You know, they're they already have cards, and so if if you're winning their business, you are probably not doing something that's sustainable. You can grow a business as a as a lender just by giving people money. You know, yeah. a, a lender growing their business by fifty percent is not by itself impressive. In fact, it can be dangerous because you know people will accept to being being lent money. Just a quick anecdote that one, one of my favorite stories from India was I was in a meeting with a finance company there that was being chided, berated by all these domestic institutional analysts in this meeting for not growing faster. And the, the reason they weren't growing faster is that, you know, they didn't want to compromise their lending standards. And I think that in when we're talking about lending businesses, Growth is not can be both a good and a bad sign. It, it, you have to you have to know what what the assets are. Yeah, that, that makes me think of the analysts in the U.S. who chided Jamie Dimon not on credit, but in 2021, said Jamie, why don't you widen your net interest margin a little bit by going out on the the curve for you know, own a 10 year bond, own some you know longer duration securities, and Jamie said no. And of course, those are the securities that were impaired immensely by the by the rise in rates. How much work do you do on U.S. banks? As people can tell, you're very familiar with the payments world. You know, I, I do a lot. I, I you know, do a lot of interviews on the U.S. banking system, and but that's because they're interesting. But they're, I know not necessarily the best performing stocks or the best businesses. But uh, yeah, what are your overall uh, thoughts? And yeah, how how did you experience the banking mini crisis uh, in in March with the fall of Silicon Valley Bank, First Republic, et cetera? Yeah, it, it's uh, and the obvious fact is just that it's a mature industry, and so it, it, you know, in terms of stocks, it's not that I think any specific bank is is unattractive. It's just I think you have better opportunities out there. You know, these are not businesses that are likely to compound earnings at a high rate for years and years, and it's it's not because they're not smart. It's not because they're not good at what they do. It's just because the the, it's a mature market. You know, the 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 products they're offering, they're already in the hands of the, the people who uh, who need them. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's, that's for the crisis. Yeah, I'd say it, it's it's one thing. One lesson I've learned is just that there is no such thing as a boring year. You you can think that you know everything is is just going swimmingly, and then and then something will erupt to make your day interesting. Yep. Yeah. Rising rates are good for banks and bad for tech stocks. So sell your tech stocks and buy banks, right? 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, how, how much attention, you know, I don't even pay that much attention to it, but I, I probably pay more attention to you, uh, to the news and the narrative of, oh, every, every now everyone's talking about private credit. You know, everyone's yeah. talking about banking and every everyone is AI. An, yeah, everyone's an AI expert. Everyone is writing, creating their AI newsletter. I mean, I feel mm-hmm. like to, to really have, you know, an edge in the investment business in terms of investing in businesses, is it, do you kind of have to tune all that stuff out? Yeah, you, you have to be detail oriented, but not obsessive. Where, where I think with something, well, whether we're talking about US tech companies or uh, Indian companies, you know, with in the Indian case, Steve and I, we go to India twice a year, spend, you know, maybe a, a month out of each year there. And I think that's a very important month to spend there. I think the other 11 months are, it's, it's great to be very removed from, from the day to day, because that's what allows you to profit off of other people's short-term thinking, where it's very easy, I think, when you're in the midst of everything to get caught up in the daily narrative of, oh, you know, well, there's a rumor about this company or this industry, you know, the prospects are getting worse, you know, for X, Y, Z reason. It's, it's very rare that the actual intrinsic value of the business will, you know, shift by 20% or more in a day. And yet companies in, in India regularly trade down or up 10 or 20% in a day. And so I think that the key is to allow those kinds of that kind of volatility to be your friend, not to have your thinking be informed by it. Final industry I want to pick your brain on is the airline industry, famously mm-hmm. an industry that you're pretty much from its inception has been unprofitable. And I, I think yep. every company except for Delta maybe has gone has gone bankrupt there over the past decade. There was a sense, at least in the investment community, that was changing. There were yeah. some mergers, prop, prop mergers, consolidation. Were Even Warren Buffett invested in them. Then COVID yeah. threw a wrench in that. I know, you know Warren Buffett sold those stocks. What's your experience been in that sector? And I mean, do, do, were, were were you ever a believer in that it would be a very profitable industry? And if you were, uh, do you still believe that? I was definitely a believer in that. I still am, just in the in the axiom that, generally speaking consolidation is good in terms of, you know, the ability of a business in any industry to maintain and sustain profit margins, returns on capital. I think the the case I'm currently more familiar with, again, is India, where the industry there as a whole has been extremely, you know, it's kind of a, a, a killing field of various people who thought that they could do it differently, including that famous liquor baron who's now been you know, he's in exile in London after trying to start an airline, which is one of many that have failed over the years in India. Most recently, it's consolidated down to basically two companies. There's Interglobe, Indigo, and basically the Tatas. And the state-owned airline, Air India, was privatized and is now owned by the Tatas. And so there, there's basically these two camps. And I think to the extent that anyone would ever think about investing in airlines, You'd much rather invest in an airline in that kind of duopolistic scenario than one where uh, you know there's this kind of free for all and there's a new low cost carrier that's undercutting everyone who launched each year. Got it. Well, final question for you, Andre. Before I let you go, it's it's a very broad one, but what do you think is the biggest or most common mistake people make in the investment business or in the investment process? Short term thinking. It's it. It really, it, it, it's such a big factor that I think, you know, this is, you know, maybe anecdotal, maybe uh, apocryphal, but the, 
I heard that you know that the best performing Fidelity accounts from a study Fidelity did, or it might have been another broker, uh, was a certain category of people and a certain group, and the group was dead people. Yeah. And the reason is that dead people don't trade. <laughs> And uh, it's it's also uh, you know the reason why housing in some contexts, including in in, in our country, has uh, generally worked out for a large number of people. It's that there's this forced hold. You know, there's a lot of friction with buying and selling a house. And so, you know, just like with a retirement account, it, it the, the the rules that and constraints that make it difficult to trade in and out they're they're a feature, not a bug. And so, if if you can only do one thing as an investor. Uh, it's it's just think long term, you know. Don't don't you know? Timing is something that it's a fool's errand. Like we saw with this you know recent run up in rates, where a lot of people were were caught wrong footed by that. And it, 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 it you can very easily overcomplicate the whole process. I think kind of the the tried and true approach of you know figure out if something is very obviously at a discount to its long-term intrinsic value, buy it and try not to check the price too often. And just wait. Yeah. Com- compounding really is magic. I mean, it's, it's, it, it, I think the, the, there's a lot of reasons why a lot of people don't benefit as much as they could from compounding and earnings and the corresponding compounding and stock prices. But I think it's, it's the simplest reason is just that it's, it's pretty hard to have an intuitive sense of the power of compounding. Like if you pay, you know, 30 times earnings today for something growing earnings at 20% versus paying, you know, five or 10 times earnings for something barely growing, the the thing selling at the higher P is the much better investment. You know, whether we're looking at 10, 20, the, it's, the, the differential as to how much better it is just grows over time mm-hmm. because, you know, the, 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 the actual that that's why quality is so important. That's why you know whether a company can reinvest earnings at a high rate of return. Why that's so important because if you really do that right, it 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 won't matter a huge amount the price you pay today. If the company growing at twenty to thirty percent, not not, year, not to say that you should overpay. Yeah, yeah. If the company growing at twenty to thirty percent per year can do it sustainably, and ten years yeah. from now it's still doing that, how do you how do you absolutely okay? This company's growing at twenty thirty percent. I, I can assess in three years it's going to be, but how do you know yeah. 10 years from now? I mean, think of- how You don't you know, you don't know, but you can assign a, a high confidence. And so, I mean, it, it's pretty infrequent, the opportunities you get to buy into that kind of business at an attractive valuation, but they do come along. And a few have come along and I, you know, I've had the, the luck to kind of coincide in terms of my thinking with a couple of those, you know, payments, music rights, there's India kind of taken as a whole. There, there's a few examples of businesses where I think it's it's not that it's not that people don't get that they're good businesses. I think it's just that people underappreciate the degree to which they can sustain that kind of compounding. And would you say there's a tendency in the investment business for companies that are not those super high quality company. I mean, when, when the S&P 500 has a really good track record over the past 20, 50 years, it's because a small percentage, you know, a minority of companies are those high quality companies that are lifting up those indices. If you could only own yeah. those companies, those would be massive underperformers. There's a huge middle, you know, mid mm-hmm. swath of companies that are 
they you know they're, they're, they're not disasters but they're just you know they, they haven't moved in, in 10 years they're, they're earning what they did 10 years ago is there a, i guess a, a process especially with passive indexation for those companies to you know, no one really wants to own them but it's just they're they're there you know what i mean yeah i'd say that professionals struggle to separate the wheat from the chaff professionals get the active management wrong a lot and so if you're going up against them you're you're you know you're you have very long odds Yes. And professionals, you know, most professionals in the stock market, bond market different but in the stock market. Most professionals do not beat the index. I, I can't, I can't discuss our specific track record, but I, I can, to what you just said, just offer one closing thought about why I think, let's just say, you know, performing well relative to an index, relative to whatever metric you want, you want to think of in India might be kind of a more worthwhile game compared to the U.S. where, when we look at a U.S. index, it's you know a huge chunk of it is driven by these technology companies that you know if you don't own them, you're probably underperforming. In India, the uh, biggest, best-known companies, like I mentioned earlier, they are the ones, generally speaking, with the higher PEs, and so you know, and, and that those higher PEs don't necessarily come with you know above benchmark growth because they are the benchmark. And there's not really that many of them. And so while India has four or 5,000 listed companies, there, if memory serves me right, are only 200, maybe 250 companies with market caps above two or three billion. And so all these indices that primarily measure those companies, all these mutual funds and ETFs that you know, are primarily invested in these same combinations of these same large companies, it's, it's much harder to capture the outperformance of these star companies that are, you know, smaller in market cap, some of which grow into larger market caps, but that's, that's what makes, you know, uncovering those gems so much more exciting because oftentimes, you know, you're the first institutional investor to meet with them. I've, I've promised many final questions, but this is my last one. So we talked a lot about India. I know you do a little bit of work in China. China, as is now evident, has a lot of problems but yeah. you know, as Howard Marks says, it's all about the price. Like high yield bonds yeah. had a lot of problems, but if everyone says I'm not going to own high yield bonds, and they have a spread of you know ten sure. basis points, it's it can be attractive. Likewise, you know Chinese stocks have a lot of issues, but if if the Chinese market had a PE of one, obviously that that might be a little bit compelling. It, it's not a PE of one, but it's a lot cheaper yeah. than it used to be. But what are your thoughts overall on that market, and are you seeing any opportunities there? Yeah, I think it's whenever something is that beaten down and it, an even more interesting sign or indicator for me is when people are just, they're so exhausted by their experience with something and so kind of beaten down by losses with something that it just kind of, it, it, it's not that they dislike it. It's just that it, nobody's even paying attention to it anymore. So there's, there's really, a, I think, I think you could say that that's now the case with, for example, technology companies there where. I think a lot of the decline in market prices, it's reflective of an actual deterioration in fundamentals. But I think it's still the case that, you know, discounts to intrinsic value can be had there. They're, I think if we're just thinking, you know, very kind of directly as to player in that drama, who's G, if his number one problem is, is you know, a sputtering economy and specifically a really kind of underwhelming recovery, post-COVID recovery from Chinese consumers, one very obvious tried and true way to boost consumer sentiment is to make consumers feel wealthier. And one way to do that is to increase the value of their financial assets. And so, you know, it, it, that, that's not neither a prediction 
nor you know nor suggestion that that is what might happen. But I'm saying that that is that would be one very logical reason for for reversal of of what we've seen there. And and just one last China related point is just that I think there is that there has been this, especially when China was you know growing at a much faster rate than now. There was this refrain that well you know in China they get stuff done, and so there's you know they they they're not a democracy, but you know. Upside is that if they want to build a piece of infrastructure, it's they they get it done. Your their economy grows at the rate they want it to, as compared to India, which like the U.S. is you know a very messy, very noisy democracy uh, with a lot of you know it's not perfect, um, just like our democracy. And it I think that the upside of that is that India can change course, can change governments. Without a revolution happening, you know the, the the there is this social and political process that's well established for figuring out you know what what the priorities of the country are, and I think that there's there's nothing close to that sense of expected stability in China. Andre, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for for coming on, sharing Thanks, your insights. You've got a blog where you uh, write about India uh, called Dispatch.com. We'll include yep. the link there. Tell people what you post about the types of thinking that you you share there, as well as how people might you know be able to get in touch with you. You you have a LinkedIn, right? Yes, and as uh, for the blog, yeah, Dispatch.com. I you know the the real you know formal purpose of of the blog is to talk about Indian macroeconomics, and you know there's a a couple of very big posts there just about India's economic history for anyone interested in that, including as well as, well as a, a couple more that are about more recent developments. But I'd say what I've tried to do at least is to make those more than just a dry, you know, summary of what's happened and kind of intersperse these discussions with, you know, my own personal experience. And so while, you know, you can just read about just about anywhere the the boom, for example, in infrastructure in India, where they're investing unprecedented amounts in metros and roads and airports. It's a totally different thing to see it firsthand and to you know walk through the brand new Delhi airport, which, by the way, is if not this year, then next year on track to become the world's second busiest after Atlanta. You know, it, you, you know, coming out of from you know nowhere ten years ago, you know. To see these things in person, I'm hoping, gives me a, a way to talk about them in a slightly more compelling way. Yeah, very, very interesting. We'll include a link to that. Andre, thanks again, and thanks everyone for watching. Thanks, Jack. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined.